Live from the 607 is the ODPH Entertainment Edition, where we're talking movies, comics, TV, and more. Why don't you join in the conversation? Hashtag ODPH, because here we go. Welcome back for another edition of the ODPH Podcast, or better known as the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour. I am your host, Ken M. Joining me in studio, as always, it's Padawan J. Hello, hello, hello. Folks, we have a lot to discuss in the land of entertainment, so let's waste no more time, shall we? Join in the conversation on our social media accounts. You can find links on OchoDuroParlayHour.com, and always use that hashtag, hashtag ODPH, because we definitely want to hear from you. There's been a lot happening, but I think the biggest entertainment story this week has to be The Boys debuting on Amazon Prime. A lot of people watching. A lot of people watching. A lot of hype behind this show. We are going to try avoiding some spoilers, but just in case, we are going to say if a spoiler uh, slips out, you've been forewarned. So if you want to watch the show first and then jump back into the segment, we'll definitely do that, and we'll put the timestamp in the liner notes when we get to it. Uh-huh. So, Pad, let's get into it. Three, two, one. Now, you are not familiar with the boys, are you? No, I can't. I gotta admit, they weren't exactly on my radar when the show was announced, and I kind of went, "Wait, who?" Now, see, this one is an interesting take. It's done. It was a comic series written by Garth Ennis and illustrated by Derek Robinson uh, for Dynamite Entertainment. It was actually not DC. A lot of people think it's DC because right. you can see some influence. Like, I believe it started at Wildstorm and then it went to Dynamite. It, it's kind of like a little tricky history with that. But that being said, if you know anything about Garth Ennis writing, he is not exactly a pro-superhero guy. Yeah, a little bit. By any means. He means he's well-known for Preacher. He's well-known for his Punisher Max series. The Thomas Jane Punisher movie is heavily influenced by his original Punisher run. And when he decided to go at superheroes, he took a very unique take on this. And that is, what happens when superheroes are morally corrupt? Mm-hmm. That they don't really have a conscience and... Just are they allowed to get away with everything? And that's that's kind of the basis on the show because there's a group that sets out to keep them in check when they decide to abuse that power. So that being said, we heard a lot of hype about this, and it was just announced at San Diego Comic-Con yeah. that it has been renewed for season two. Which is usually a pretty good sign, you know, no matter if it's a regular TV show or a streaming television show. If you get renewed before the show's even out, yeah, that's pretty good luck. Oh, it definitely is a good look, and it's definitely well worth it. Because the show, it's uh, showrunner is Eric Kripke, who you know from Supernatural. Okay. And I believe it is a tie-in to Seth Rogen's production company as well. So obviously if you're tying in with those heavy hitters, you know you're going to have a great show on your hands. The thing about the show that you have to really take into context is it is definitely TVMA. Yeah. It is definitely not for kids by any stretch of the imagination. I, was like, I haven't watched any of it, but just from the descriptions and some of the stuff I've read online, yeah, if you're watching this with your kids in your room, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that at all. It is definitely not meant for kids. It has kind of the over-the-top violence you saw in Wanted. Right, to okay. Put it, to put it in perspective. And to kind of really break down the storyline, like for me, this is kind of when you have the corrupt superheroes, kind of your, I don't want to say anti-heroes because it's just really with great power and no responsibility mixed in with the elements from Youngblood, Rob Liefeld's first image comic series, where they're all kind of worried about their PR image and, and being, you know, their Q ratings and such and just, yeah. you know, where they stand in the public. So when the show really starts kicking in, I mean, it kind of centers around a character by the name of Huey Campbell, who's played by Jack Quaid. Now, he is, in this setup, he is typically like your Peter Parker type, mild-mannered, okay. has a girlfriend, 
you know, Donna is looking at his job. And as he's walking with his girlfriend, he pauses to talk and they're kind of talking about future plans. All of a sudden, he's sitting there covered in blood, holding two hands. Right. And she has literally been evaporated huh. because a train who is the character of the flash easiest comparison literally ran right through her. Ow. Yes. And he kind of looks back. He's like, I can't stop. I can't stop. So meanwhile, he is just in shock because, well, his girlfriend was literally killed right in front of him. And as he's going through the motions of grieving, A-Train makes up a story on national television with the PR people that, well, you know, she was out in the middle of the road and I couldn't stop to save her. And just this whole just nightmare scenario right. for him to sit through and going, she was on the, the street. She was halfway on the block. Like, there was no way she was in the street. And as he comes to find out that this group, which is known as the Seven, which parallels the DC Justice League original Seven right. to the letter, is these group of heroes that are considered godlike, but yet are just morally corrupted as possible. It's just like we go harping, harping back to, with great power and no responsibility, this is what you get. And they think they can get away with everything. So as Huey is dealing with this situation, he comes into contact with a man uh, known as Butcher, who is played by Carl Urban, who oh, okay. is incredible on the show. Absolutely incredible. And he basically says, well, if you're sick and tired of dealing with this kind of nonsense, let's step up and let's do something. And this is where he kind of goes down the road of just the insanity that is normal humans trying to fight superhumans. And at this stage, this is one of those contexts that he is having his uh, kind of questioning of, am I doing the right thing by trying to fight these guys? Okay. Because he's really outmatched, and he's really kind of suckered in by Butcher to help him in his vendetta against the Seven, and it really isn't divulged until a little later in the show of his reasonings behind it. But as Huey is entangled in this, he actually comes across one of the newest members of the Seven, Starlight, played by Aaron Moriarty. And she is essentially Superman coming from Smallville, small town, Kansas, Midwest, coming to the big city, has big dreams of being a hero and really stepping up and, you know, being just the iconic member of the Seven, just, you know, all the right reasons that you want to be a superhero and is quickly dismayed by what goes on involving the Seven and has a very disturbing sequence with the Deep, played by Chase Crawford, who is their Aquaman, that I won't get into because it was just like, ah. Oh. But it, it, yeah. follows, it follows the book. Like You're just like, oh, this is wrong, and this is, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it works to the character because he is just an absolute jerk in this show. And it plays to the fault where, you know, Starbright has to kind of make her, or Starlight, rather, has to make her, you know, way through this mess because what she finds out is her dream is not really her dream when she wakes up. That all these heroes, or so-called heroes, are actually phony as all can believe. And to stay where she is, she has to do stuff that she's not exactly cool with. I mean, there's in one sequence, she actually stops somebody from being attacked, but she was getting punished because it got recorded and she was in her street clothes and she was like, well, I'm doing the right thing. They were attacking this this girl, and they're like, no, you can't do that. And you know, she's not coming forward. So now it's this, you know, those like fraternity brothers attacking. You're beating them up on camera in your street clothes. You've compromised everything. Ready to get you know fired. Have to do a public apology. And then the next day, well, you know, suddenly she came forward when she saw your video. So we flipped it around. Everything works. Yay! 
Hooray. Your points went up 29%, your popularity. And she's like, what? Which popularity points for like a superhero organization or group is kind of a funny thing I never thought of before. Yeah, it's one of those weird situations that, like I said, the only time I've really seen this is with Rob Liefeld's Youngblood, which, right. I mean, for that one, it was more or less a you have your superhero government team that has to deal with, like, as media superheroes. Mm -hmm. And basically, the higher your Q rating are, the more you stay on the team. And they've done roster shifts when, you know, obviously some some heroes have not been the most popular for various reasons. Right. Like, the original Youngblood concept is very interesting, and, and it's definitely worth a read, I would say. Um, I know it's kind of differed a little bit since then, but it's definitely uh, was, at the time, one of the most interesting concepts I think I've seen on a show. Yeah, it sounds it. Yeah, because you put heroes in the limelight and they're now celebrities. Right. And in this situation, you have more of the same, but you just have, in, the, in this situation, corrupt heroes. And none more corrupt than Homelander, who is, to put it mildly, a mix of Captain America and Superman and all the wrong reasons. That just sounds dangerous. Yeah, Anthony Starr, who plays him, he plays a wonderful job as him, but my God, does the skin crawl because of how absolutely shifty he is that he knows he is Superman, mm -hmm. I mean, essentially, and Captain America, and he's you know the model superhero. Everybody wants to be him, and he is just in it for his own game and that of the organization. Right. And that is just one wild scenario that he gets into these situations where he is the one that obviously imposes his will on everybody. Mm -hmm. And nobody there step, steps up to challenge him. And for all the right reasons, because if they decided to, they would definitely lose that battle. I mean, it's like this is why Superman is the head of the JLA. Right. It's just that's how it is. And it goes into just all types of different scenarios where he is just using his influence and making sure that the seven don't lose their popularity. I mean, they're working with the Voight organization and they're into their own dirty stuff too, as well. So, I mean, they're, they're backed up. They sign, you know, they're getting paid to just basically be heroes and a PR image. And the boys's mission is just to take them down by any means necessary. And mm -hmm. when they get going on it, they actually wind up taking one down because when Huey's mission is to infiltrate Voight's uh, headquarters to plant a bug, he gets caught. Uh-oh. And Translucent is the quote-unquote hero who finds him and definitely gets caught into the hijinks of what is going on with the boys. And it's an interesting scenario that happens there because now they've come across the line of, okay, you now have your first hero quote-unquote meeting the boys and they start meeting other characters like Frenchie who gets brought into the mix and where Butcher's plan goes awry and obviously what happens from there is just really really interesting in the aspect of now you have humans that have essentially declared war on superheroes and now this is where you really kind of see who is going to win this battle because it's not exactly as cut and dry as you think because with the corporation backing the seven, the boys' battle is very tough. And obviously right, because they have to find ways to win against heroes that they really have no logistic shot with. But the way that this is written, I mean, it follows this comic line very, very to the point. The comic line was about 72 issues, so they do have material to work from. When they start going into their battles, it's, it's basically just thinking like an elite fighting force. Right. Against superheroes. Okay. And how can you outsmart them? 
And I mean, obviously how they deal with the translucent storyline is extremely interesting, extremely not safe for work, but it's the, t- it's the tone of the show. And as it progresses forward, you see that and you see the political alliances, so to speak. And just, I mean, just how like dirty the world of superheroes is. Mm-hmm. And for Pad, for going into this, do you ever, have you ever envisioned like something like this happening where like the superheroes of a comic universe just completely take over? I mean... Uh- to a certain degree, we've kind of seen it, I think, I feel like with Injustice or something of that sort, but I've never fully thought it out or think it would ever be realized. To me, it always struck me because, you know, as long as comics have been around and as for presumably as long as they will continue to be around, superheroes are always kind of held in that regard of like, we're the last line of defense, we're the first line of defense, and we're going to do whatever it takes to save, you know, our planet, our city, our town, whatever it may be. So, it, you know, they've always kind of been portrayed in that kind of Boy Scout, you know, limelight, you know, oh, we're going to do the right thing type of way. But it, it's it's an interesting view to see them. Hey, you know what? We're pretty powerful and there's nothing you can do to stop us. It almost makes a uh, Batman scenario in the Doom uh, animated movie where he, he has contingency plans all uh, for everybody. It makes him uh, kind of right. Yeah, it definitely is an interesting and just to see how this happens, because I mean, the show definitely captures the tone of the book. To the right, letter. I right. mean, it's ultra violent as can be, and it works in its favor. It's not like corny violence. It, it it's over the top, but as it should be, because when you have humans fighting superheroes, yeah, I mean, realistically, there shouldn't be a chance that they win. No, but they find ways to win, and as you see with Homelander and his team, they're caught off guard about this. Yeah, and they're more or less trying to work that their ultimate angle at the beginning of the season is they want to get sponsored by the government to be the first line of defense. Okay. And they actually, I want to say, they make a tragedy into a PR spin Uh to kind of ensure this after doing some double-crossing and blackmailing. Okay. I don't even want to get into it because, like I said, I'm really trying to avoid spoilers because I really want people to jump in on this show and really be just caught into it. Because, like I say, the acting on this has been just very top-notch. Carl Urban is definitely stealing the show on this. And everybody that he's been paired up with on the show, I mean, Laz Alonzo playing Mother's Milk on the show has been a great a great foil to him as well. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and just going through, I mean, Tomar Capone playing Frenchie. I mean, just the three of those when they're mixing in, you know, the dynamic there. And you're hearing their different reasons why they're going against the seven. Okay. And as the story is unfolding, you're seeing Huey and Starbright kind of get brought into it and... I mean, that's, I think, maybe the only thing I don't like about the show so far is that they're completely setting up for, like, the romance angle. Right. And it's kind of like, well, I get it, but we're kind of still waiting to see because as the show is progressing, you kind of see how Starbright is adapting to being a part of the Seven. Okay. And just ultimately, Butcher is just saying, you know, is this isn't going to be the happy ending. Probably I mean, not. It's just not, but... Just how it's how it's gone for eight episodes, it's been truly remarkable. I haven't finished the season off just yet. Bright Guy Signal did. Maybe we'll get a little blog or commentary from him later in the week about it. But overall, though, the show has been everything I wanted it to be and more because it captured the dark humor essence that is the books. Because if you've ever read them, it's almost spot on to them. Like, just they capture the tone of it, and it's definitely not nice. It's not the pretty picture that you see in your typical superhero comics. And for this to be the surprise hit that it is, Pat, mm-hmm. I think this is going to lead into maybe what we're going to start seeing more of from uh, the television and film yeah. market yeah. for Heroes. Because are, are you saying now that we're going after Endgame, 
do you think it's still oversaturated? The show like The Boys is really resonating because it's different, would you say? Or I don't think it's necessarily oversaturating anything. I think it's just providing more variety for people because like all comics, there are like comics, there are a lot of different types of comics. There are your comics with superheroes in them. There are your comics with detectives in them. There are comics about everyday life, you know, in both Western and, and Japanese culture, you know, you see that kind of thing. So I think it does like if with as much variety as there is in the comics and manga and that kind of thing, it only does well to benefit the movies and TV because yeah, you have your people who like, you know, your traditional Superman movies or your Batman movies, but then there are the people who, who will like the ultra violent, ultra hardcore type stuff. And I think it only does well for those folks to see what they want to see on the screen. I think it, when it's a win-win for everybody. I think it definitely is. I mean, obviously with how the DC universe has been going with doom patrol and that's definitely been a different show that is definitely not your typical superhero show by any means. And to see when sci-fi had happy and deadly class on and it didn't really break through there to see the boys breaking through on Amazon Prime, I think, is a great sign for independent comics to be brought to a different form of media and to be successful. The show has been getting nothing but rave reviews, and I'm pretty sure the watch numbers have been very good. I haven't seen any final numbers of the initial week, but. The product is definitely worth the while. And to see the show that breaks out like this, that is very much not meant for network TV. Oh, God, no. And cable, I mean, it definitely fits on there. But for a streaming service like Amazon Prime, it fits perfectly. And I think it opens the door for more shows to come out that are in that kind of vein. And I think that that's a great thing. I mean, right. like you were talking about, if everything is just like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and just happy and, you know, the Marvel way, so to speak. I don't think it's going to work overall. I think that the fan base wants to see something different, and the boys is. It's yeah. not it's not shock value for shock value because there are some shocking moments. Um, dare I say when the deep tries to make a dolphin escape. Mm. We'll just leave it at that. Um, moments like that, I mean, definitely are not your typical superhero moments. And I think that obviously with how shocking that is, it's a good – it's a different you know storytelling pace that I think – works with the viewers because like I say, not everything can just be good guy versus bad guy. And when you start seeing the, you know, corruption, I guess, or just the areas go gray of, you know, characters, you really kind of get a sense that, you know, not everybody that says they're a superhero is a superhero and then who keeps them in check. So in final thoughts on this, I think the boys has been nothing but a very good hit. I like it. Everything I've seen so far and all the reviews have been great. It's eight episodes for the first season. It's been renewed for season two. And I think that just going off that, the future is very bright for the show. And I would not mind seeing some more The Boys-like shows hit the screen. And what I mean by that is not everything needs to be superheroes and costumes and all that. Sometimes it just got to be great storytelling. And there's definitely a market for that. Boys is proof. But definitely hit me up on social media and let's interact this conversation, shall we? Hit a, hit us up, hashtag ODPH. What is your thoughts about the boys on Amazon Prime? Have you seen the whole season yet? What is your thoughts? What did you like? What did you not? Overall, I thought it was great. I mean, the only things I said I'm not too much into is the Huey and Starbright romance, but I can deal with that. But let me know what you think. Hit us up. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, this is the King of Lyle, Luke Visengard, Gladius 205 champion, and you're listening to the ODPH.
Coming back for segment number two on this edition of the ODPH podcast. And last week we mentioned that there was some big comic news coming out. Mm-hmm. And one big issue was hitting the stands and that you needed to go pick up. Yep. It was House of X by Jonathan Hickman. Uh-huh. The restart of the X-Men franchise. We are going to be talking spoilers because Pat and I both read this issue. Yep. Amazing issue. Holy cow, yeah. And setting the tone for things moving forward. A little bit. So we are going to break down it as much as we can. So let's waste no more time, shall we? Three, two, one, pad. What did you think? I thought it was an incredible issue. Definitely a lot of, you know, after effects or interesting things are going to be coming out of this issue. And just where they go, ooh, boy, it's going to be nuts. Yeah, this, obviously with Hickman writing, you know you're due for a long, lengthy saga. Mm-hmm. And it will pay off. So oh, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not mad. I'm not saying that in any kind of negative fashion. And, and you can already tell out the gate, and we'll get to this you know, later in the segment, but they are setting up for some big things right out the gate. Oh, huge. I mean, this is a great jumping on point for anybody who has not read the X-Men before. Mm-hmm. Or if you have read the X-Men and you stopped for whatever reason, and you want to get back into it because oh, yeah. they reestablish some things. They start some new projects up. They just really start digging into it. So, Pad, yeah. why don't you start breaking it down for us? Well, so the, the comic hits you right out the gate where the first page you see, you see a couple panels of this weird plant-looking structure with some light shining down. And you see, uh, 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 what, what would you call that, a helmet-looking figure, helmet-looking thing? It's, it's Professor Xavier standing there over what – the only way I can describe it as – is like the pods you see or something akin to uh, the Matrix movies. It, it just looks something like that, and it looks really weird. You know, they're just being born, and he's standing there kind of like almost godlike over them while they're, you know, naked, covered in this weird-looking goo, reaching up to him, and he just says, to me, my X-Men. It, it's a wild start. Yeah, I mean, jumping out the gate, he's wearing, it looks like a Cerebro-type helmet. Yeah. And it, it's just weird that he's, like, hatching clones. like see, something. So, I mean, right out the gate, we're jumping into uh, let's get weird, folks. Uh-huh. So then the next couple things you see is it's it's kind of like a timeline or a couple panels showing, you know, t- different times and points in time. You know, five months ago uh, in Krakow, I think that's how you say that, mm-hmm. it, it's Colossus holding a purple flower. Then four months ago in Westchester, it's Storm holding a similar type of purple flower. Then you flash into three months ago in the blue area of the moon. You have somebody planting another purple flower. I think it's Iceman. Looks, yeah, it looks like Iceman. Uh, then you flash to two months ago on Mars, and you have somebody planting, you guessed it, another purple flower. Uh, then one month ago in the Savage Land is what looks like Beast with, you guessed it, purple flowers. Then they switch to three weeks ago in Washington, D.C., and somebody is sitting there looking uh, over the water at the Washington Monument. Uh, there's some plant overgrowth wherever she is, uh, and you, and in the background are purple flowers. Uh, two weeks ago is another somebody else planting purple flowers, and then it jumps into Jerusalem and the habitat, which it's a there's a giant building just completely overgrown, and there's several ambassadors from several countries from around the world who have shown up, and they're not quite sure why they're there. Yeah, the, the premise of this is whoever is hatching this... I don't want to say mulch because I don't think that's the right word for it, but they're right. they're hatching something all throughout different corners of the world, and I mean obviously off Earth too, from what we can tell. Yeah, and they're inviting ambassadors from different countries all over the world to come to Croeca mm-hmm. um, to essentially meet what we are finding out is 
Professor X has now staged this as the sanctuary for mutants. Mm -hmm. Now, we have seen this before in the past. I mean, Cyclops did it most recently with Utopia, and, I mean, even Magneto did it with Asteroid M at a certain degree. So this is not exactly a new idea per se, but as we start digging into the story, oh, yeah, it's definitely a difference. No, yeah, that's kind of the thing. And the thing this issue kind of sets up is that, you know, something is going on to where the human race only has like five years left. And when I say human race, I mean those that aren't mutant powered have like five years left. Yeah. Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens have five years left, but a drug has been developed that extends human life five years. There's another drug that prevents diseases of the mind and a third that is the most effective and it's an adaptive antibiotic, the most adaptive antibiotic the world has ever seen. And can you guess who has this drug or all three drugs? Yeah, that's right. Xavier and his folks. See, like from here, this is where I kind of start questioning, is this really Xavier? Because granted, Xavier has done some shady things over the years. Not giving him a complete yeah, know, no, free, he has. free pass. But for me, this is like, this isn't his style. He's always been the humans and mutants can live in peace and harmony dream. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's been him since day one. Yeah. So to see him take it to this level where he's using political strategy of saying, hey, I have this, you know, drugs that will cure you of your ailments, extend your life. It just it's not ringing a bell like this is something he would do. But right. but this is something that's like, OK, if Xavier is acting like this, well, let's kind of wait and see. Well, and if you already had alarm bells going off in your head, you know, the next couple panels aren't helping at all. The, they finally let the ambassadors into this building and they start getting shown around. Uh, and who shows up to talk to them? Uh, because they wonder when the, one of them says, uh, when, quote, when will we be meeting with Xavier? Uh, and then a voice says, Charles won't be joining us today. He is otherwise engaged. I admit I am a poor substitute, but hopefully I'll manage. And it's Magneto in all white. Yeah, him with the Stuffer Cuckoos, which is never a good combo. Nope. So, obviously, if he is going to be the one that is going to be the ambassador of Kuroka, mm-hmm. uh yeah, this has definitely got my attention already. Yeah, so then we jump to the next couple panels, and it's Ms. Marvel escorting a group of mutants, one of them being very young. Jean Grey. Jean Grey, Ms. Marvel, yeah, escorting a, a couple mutants, one of them young. Uh, they're going through Krakow into this mutant sanctuary, and they're, they're just really explaining everything, and you're seeing some people show up. Uh, and then you see a map of Krakow, which is in the Pacific. Specifically, it looks like it's near, it's uh, northwest of uh, Australia, and kind of in that region of the world. And then you see an actual map of Krakow, and they kind of detail. Okay, they lo- they place stuff out. You know, House of X, House of M. You know, Arena, Transit, the Oracle, the Grove, the Cradle. The- so they're kind of just laying things out of like, all right, here's where we are, here's where everybody is, and we're gonna go from here. Yeah, it's a great explanation. I do like how they have throughout this issue little segue points that explain yeah, what's going on. which is good because there's been a lot of fanfare and a lot of anticipation with this run because it's Jonathan Hickman. And I, it's good for them to do this because there's going to be a fair number of people who haven't, you know, either haven't either ever read an X-Men comic or they haven't read one in a while. So it's just doing, helping everybody out by catching them up. Yeah, definitely. It, would, it helped me out because going to Krakow, and like I said, this is tying back to Giant X Men, Giant Size X Men One, where you mm-hmm. had the debut of the team of uh, Storm, Nightcrawler, Thunderbird, Wolverine, Banshee, Colossus, and like the modern day X Men, so to speak, yeah. coming in after the original five. So yeah. I mean, it's a nice throwback to it, yeah. but. As we see, the mystery goes further. Yeah, the mystery goes further. We jump into space where you've got uh, two people in a spaceship flying out to the forge. And, quote, it, it's the, our best hope uh, to survive the, in the coming days. She is a Hail Mary for humanity, Agent Mandel. 
Uh, so be gentle when you give her a kiss. And they're docking with this thing, and they go to meet. They go to meet, and they're just kind of discussing things. The wild thing about this, though, and a couple pages later, they extend out. There's a giant freaking sentinel head. Yeah, this is never good. Yeah, I mean. Obviously, there is reaction to if Xavier and Magneto have opened up their own safe haven, somebody is going to come up with some kind of defense mechanism to go in case they something happens that they need they feel they need to step in with. And Sentinels, mm-hmm. anytime you see Sentinels on on a page, is never a good thing, especially when it's a giant one. It's just it's just a boy. Yeah. Yeah, so then you, you get, like uh, Ken mentioned, you get one of the little f- fillers to tie you in. They talk about the or- Orcus Protocol. Uh, it says, quote, initial establishment of Doomsday Network based on evolutionary research regarding the extinction level population density of Homo sapiens superior uh, recruitment of assets and strategic organizations, including AIM, SHIELD, Strike, SWORD, Alpha Flight, Hammer, Armor, and Hydra, as well as funding from black budgets and other human-centric financial considerations, uh, absorption and adaptation of various organizational assets into the next generation infrastructure, in all caps, build for doomsday, operating under that the premise that there are very, three areas of concern, population, financial, territorial, Orcus assets, established watchdog programs to observe undetected mutant influence. And then it kind of gives you a nice little uh, pie chart of, you know, Orcus construction structure and makeup and just kind of like, you know, who's got how much, I guess, invested into this or put into this kind of thing. It says uh, AIM has 31% is 31% of Orcus shield is 24%. Strike is 16%, Sword is 8%, Alpha Flight is 7%, Hammer is 5%, Armor is 5%, and Hydra is 4%. See, that's an interesting mix of organizations, yeah. too. And especially with AIM being the head of this mm-hmm. advanced idea of machines there. Like, I mean, I love the throwback. Yeah. Because AIM, AIM has been a long stay in the Marvel Universe, but yeah. interesting they want to kind of dance with the Xavier and company. Yeah. So then we jump forward. Uh, we're back in New York and specifically damage control uh, in a contested storage facility where you've got uh, Mystique and Sabretooth kind of fighting things out. And they're trying to get and Toad's there. They're hacking into a place and they're like, listen, let's not be subtle about this. Let's just get what we need and go. And Toad's trying to cover their tracks. And they finally make their way out with the information they needed. And lo and behold, who shows up to stop them? The Fantastic Four. Uh-huh. And this leads to one of the more interesting uh, moments in the comic where you've got Sabretooth says, both of you go on. I got this. Uh, The thing says, that's a mighty bold talk for a guy who smells like burnt hair. Smile for me. And then he uppercuts him, you know, backwards and throws him. Uh, Mystique says, if we don't get out of here with the data, this was all for nothing. We have to make the gateway. Uh, Toad says, should we run? I think we should run. See, at this stage, it's interesting that they're pulling a heist in daylight. Uh Uh-huh. And, I mean, they, they're they obviously stealing some kind of information. Yeah. And if it is from damage control, I mean, damage control has always been known in the comics as the company that comes in and cleans up the messes. Right. And they even established that in the comics. Yeah. The other thing they kind of go into is there's a, some interesting kind of like, I guess, legal issues damage control's having uh, because you get another one of those filler things for those who haven't maybe kept up on the comics long enough where it says, while this corporate entity traditionally serves in a quarantine or repair rebuild capacity, damage control also operates as the archival unit for government contested metahuman machinery and technology that belongs to missing, incapacitated, 
or deceased individuals where either a clean chain of custody does not exist or the items in question pose an existential threat to the United States. Current inventory in the damage control contested storage facility is made up almost exclusively of advanced schematics and disassembled material created or owned by Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, and Tony Stark, uh, Iron Man. So, and then it lists, uh, there's a list of security items at level five, including Soul's Anvil, Soul's Hammer, The Bridge, Iron Man Mark V, Mark VI, Mark VII, Mark VIII, Rescue Mark I, Rescue Mark II, Anti-Proton Sling, and a Multiversal Beacon. So if they're dancing around with this, what I my early takeaway from this is they are very aware of what's going on in space, and they mm-hmm. are making plans to take that down. Yeah, and the reason they bring this up is, you know, there's kind of debate and, and question of, you know, who has what or who has control of what because Reed Richards went missing for a prolonged period of time and while well, Tony Stark was presumed dead. Yeah, so obviously with both of them being brought back into the comic continuum, you know, recently, this is kind of an interesting factor that's going to get mixed in with everybody. Yeah, so then we flash back to the ambassadors with Magneto at Krakow where they're kind of getting a tour of the place and they're looking around and one of them notices over a doorway that there's this weird-looking language and they're trying to figure out what it is. Uh, and Magneto says it's not Russian, English, French, or Chinese, but it's a language ours. You know, it's Krakowin, and every mutant who lives among us has its has it telepathically imprinted in their cerebral cortex the day they arrive. Uh, so one of the ambassadors says, so you made your own language. Uh, Magneto says, of course we did. One cannot create a distinct culture without it. And make no mistake, that is exactly what Charles Xavier is doing. Uh, and that's the one thing that Magneto, whenever he's talking to the uh, ambassadors, he keeps harping on. Like, it's not me making this these decisions. It's Charles Xavier. Which is even more telling that Xavier is going this route. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll get into my thoughts a little later on Xavier. So then they really start to show, like, kind of the, the craziness and the... And the possibilities with Krakow, you know, they're not, it's not limited by distance and they jump to, they jump from where they are to uh, what I presume is, looks like uh, the Australian outback Yeah, because there's kangaroos jumping around and then it says, or elevation and they go to a mountain range, which I'm going to guess it's the Himalayas and it's uh, Everest in the background. Uh, Then it says, or even environment and they're in like the bottom of an ocean someplace. So all of a sudden the ambassadors are sitting here going, wait a minute, we got a group that nobody's really quite sure of what's going on with. And you can tell you're telling me you can go anywhere you want. And that'd be like distance elevation or depth They're They're not exactly comfortable about this. No, it's not. And obviously with Magneto being involved and obviously with his relations with the human race, uh, you kind of are going in this with a little guarded trepidation. I mean, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't fault them in their reactions to this as well. But like I said, the, the biggest question mark right now, or X factor, if you will, pun intended, right, is if Xavier is doing all this, I yeah. mean, this is a very swift shift in character. Yeah, one of the ambassadors, you know, even calls, goes so far as to call it an instrument of war. And Magneto says, where you see an instrument of war, I see an unassailable refuge. That's quite a difference. Uh, the ambassador says, some would call that semantics. Either way, it's an advantage. Magneto goes, there has never been a mutant war ambassador. We've never conquered a people, stolen their land, or made slaves of the vanquished. That's our real advantage. The ambassador says, excuse me, but when are we go- actually going to when are we actually going to go to Krakow? Uh, and one of the uh, females says, uh, well, at this point, Krakow is as much of an idea as it is an actual place. But if you mean the main island itself, we won't be going there. Uh, one of the ambassadors says, why not? Magneto says, you have heard Charles Xavier's offer. Mutants are the evolutionary inheritors of, of this world. 
all of it. But instead of claiming it, we are giving it to you and keeping only a small portion for ourselves. The island you see is ours and ours alone. Man is not welcome there. Yeah, which is a bold statement, but Mm -hmm. I get it. So then we flash back to New York, and it's you know it's uh, Mystique, Sabretooth, and Toad running from the Fantastic Four, and they're finally making it to the portal where uh, everybody but Sabretooth makes it into the portal, and Sabretooth is then immediately encased in this mental box thing by Sue Storm, and all of a sudden it's not just the Thing and Johnny Storm there, but Mister Fantastic and like I said, Sue Storm are there. Uh, you know, they show up and they got him in prison and then they realize, oh, wait, the portal's activating and somebody's coming through. And lo and behold, it is everyone's and I mean, everyone's favorite mutant, Scott Summers. Yeah. Back from the dead and mm-hmm. and picking up where he's more or less left off. And I realize it's kind of hard to read inflection and tone when you're reading a comic book. But kudos to the writing team for this, because I can read how he's saying this and I can't hear the man because he says in the last panel of, of the page. Uh, ah, how wonderful. The Richards family. And you can see the smirk on his face. Uh, he actually gives a uh, little compliments to uh, Ben Grimm. He says, and to you, Ben, I hear you got married. Mazel tov. And Ben says, oh, thanks, Slim. So he, there is a nice moment, albeit short-lived. Right, because obviously how Cyclops has been written the past few years. Uh-huh. Uh, he's been more Magneto than Xavier. Yeah. So yeah. to see this interaction is kind of interesting, especially with the, you know, taking it back to the events of Avengers vs. X-Men. Mm-hmm. He, he asks how everyone's doing. Sue says, oh, you know, just the normal fireworks. He says, well, what would life be without a little surprises? So Mr. Fantastic says, so. He goes, shall I take Mr. Creed, uh, Sabretooth, off your hands? Uh, Johnny says, oh, we just caught him. They don't want to give him up. And, you know, he... Uh, Cyclops says it's upsetting, I know, but I'm aware of, I'm afraid we are. New beginnings and beginning demand a wider birth because he's essentially saying, uh, he's kind of implying Sabretooth has diplomatic immunity. Yeah, which was a really interesting take. Uh huh. Really interesting take. Yeah, and, and you're almost having a, like, it feels like a prequel to, like, maybe an Avengers uh, Fantastic Four. Or not Avengers, excuse me, X-Men Fantastic Four fight because, like, they're staring at each other and they look like they're ready to start trading blows. Uh, they but, so they're kind of standing off. There's a couple panels where they don't say anything, and Cyclops says, "Fair enough. I can see you feel strongly about this. Why don't you keep him? We'll deal it with some other other time, some other way." Sabretooth is not happy about this because he says, "What are you bleeping kidding me, Summers?" And he decides to leave and and uh, leave, and he says. Uh, it's really very simple, Susan. I believe in what Charles Xavier is doing. Please greet your son for me and tell him when he's ready. He has family on Krakow waiting for him. Yeah, taking that final jab because as Pad's going to break down, Franklin Richards, very well known, as possibly the most powerful mutant on the planet. Yeah, because we, we get another one of these fill-in pages for me, for, again, for those who maybe haven't read anything in a while, and it kind of goes over the Omega-level mutants, and it defines Omega-level mutant as a mutant whose dom- dominant power is deemed to register or reach an undefinable upper limit that of that power's specific classification. It gives some examples and some notes, and then it kind of and then it goes through the list. Uh, it lists Monarch. Uh, I'll just read the names uh, of who it lists as the Omega level mutants: Monarch, Iceman, Elixir, Marvel Girl for her, Jean Grey for her telepathy, uh, Legion for his power for power manifestation, uh, Magneto, Proteus, Mister M, Storm, Exodius, Kid Omega, Powerhouse. Uh, and then uh, Vulcan and Hope. Yeah, which I I applaud that they finally categorize what an Omega mutant is. Mm-hmm. 
Because before it was kind of, well... It was like left up to your own personal interpretation. Right. So I love it that Hickman has broken it down, given us a little pie chart, so to speak. Yeah. And explaining it in detail, which this makes sense. And it's very interesting of how this is broken down because right. as it stems, there are two that are there that have telepathy that that is their um, Omega level. Yeah. There's Jean Grey and that's Kid Omega. Mm-hmm. But it's also very interesting that Jean Grey is not the telekinesis yeah. Omega level. That's Exodus. I think the other interesting thing with this list, and you can see it if you pick up the issue, and the, I feel like this might come into play later, is they've got the name, they've got the alias, and they've got their power. All right, that makes all fine. That makes sense. That's all fine and dandy. Then they list their alliance. Yeah. That, that to me, is very interesting. They list their alliances like either not, there's a couple who have none. There's a, more, a multitude who have Krakoa listed as their alliance. There's some who have none. Or there's one, in the case of Franklin Richards, a.k.a. Powerhouse, whose allegiance is uh, human. Yeah, which I think will come to play later on in the series. I, mm-hmm. They don't they don't just leave that highlighted just for no reason. Yeah, so then we flash back to uh, the, the Krakoan habitat in Jerusalem where Magneto basically lays things out. Uh, and he goes, so what have we learned? Uh, and basically, we that's where we find out if the if the nations of the world want these drugs, these miracle drugs that Charles Xavier and, and company have come up with, they have to recognize Krakow as a nation of good standing. You know, the the only way they're going to get these drugs, like we said before, the extend life, cure mental disease, or and and the the most most powerful antibiotic in the world, you're going to have to recognize Krakow as a nation. So, and essentially, it's like, yeah, we're holding you guys hostage. We can help you, but you got to recognize us and do the absolute last thing you want to do and see us as equals. Yeah, and it's interesting that they're going that route. I mean, like I say, I like the take on this. Mm-hmm. I'm just very surprised at it, which I like. I mean, yeah. obviously, because when they're coming back and they're really shifting everything up, this definitely is going to be something to watch moving forward. Mm-hmm. So then we get to the end of the episode. We get to the end of the issue where one of the ambassadors we learned had snuck on, snuck a, uh, a handgun into the facility, not to use against them, but it was for his own protection. But they decide to not to do anything about it. You know, and you get to the end, and you get to the end where he says, uh, "It's good that you." And Magneto says, "And it's good that you are here, all of you, as you really are, so you can run home and tell your masters what you have learned. I want you to tell them all. Charles Xavier has made you an offer, one full of grace and brotherly love, but one that is also written in stone. This is not a negotiation. Things will be different now, and the sooner you realize the finality of your situation and the inevitability of ours, the sooner you will learn to be grateful for the things we are so generously giving you." Uh, and the ambassador says, do you know what you sound like? Magneto says, I do. And it feels good to finally say it. Uh, he goes, uh, one of the other ambassadors says, so you summoned us here to Jerusalem to what? Threaten us? Magneto says, a promise is not a threat, ambassador. And I summoned you to this place wholly superficial for wholly superficial reasons. You see, I know how you humans love your symbolism almost as much as you love your religion. And I wanted you, I needed you to understand you have new gods now. Well, you knew Magneto is got to be thriving in this mm-hmm. situation. If anybody is stepping up to just embrace this new way of, you know, establishing them as the dominant figures in the MCU, mm-hmm. Magneto would be leading that charge. All oh day, yeah, all day. Mm-hmm. So going in with that, 
overall thoughts of where you think this is going forward? Uh, man, they got to be setting up for some big stuff because I feel like they're. I feel like it's one of those things like it, it. Like you said, Hickman's stuff is a slow burn. It's kind of a slow build. It doesn't give you immediate payoffs. But I feel like there are going to so many Easter eggs and little hints in this issue that are going to lead to major ramifications down the road. That it's it's going to be huge. I think so too. I mean, obviously, I got some question marks of where they're going with this because especially with how every mutant, it seems like, is magically falling in line Mm -hmm. with how Xavier is now running this. Yeah, which Which is already suspect to begin with. It's suspect to begin with, especially if that's really him with a Cerebro helmet. And that's the thing we should know. They show him at the beginning of the issue. That's the last time we see him, and at no point does he take the helmet off. No, he doesn't. So we don't know if that's really him or not. Right. I mean, that could be Cassandra Nova, his half sister. Yeah, which I wouldn't doubt, and that yeah. would be a that would be a Nova move to be her. Mm-hmm. Uh, just but with that being said, though, it just kind of seemed very interesting that we didn't see any Wolverine in this issue except for one that looked like he was playing around with kids. Yeah. on the island. Yeah, and every X Men that we know has kind of been you know pushed aside, and unless, like I said. The one walking with Magneto, I'm pretty sure, is one of the Stefford Cuckoos, if, unless it was Emma Frost, but that did not look like no, her, in my opinion. No, no, it so, didn't. So, I mean, that being said, the X-Men we saw in this issue, Cyclops falling back in line with Xavier after having their falling out. Yeah, something's up. Something is definitely up. And especially, it was never touched upon after mm-hmm. that the characters that looked like they were cloned and to me, my X-Men, from the beginning of the book. Yeah wasn't followed up on. No, that was, it was kind of like a one-page type thing, and then we're moving on. Because I'm almost wondering, is that something that they're going to be planting sleeper agents throughout the world? Could be. With those flowers? Could be. I mean, it's possible? Mm-hmm. Because the one thing with the storyline, which I, I thought was kind of interesting, is with Xavier's um, health care, yeah. I guess if you want to call it. Yeah. That Reed Richards didn't jump in and say... I beg to differ. Mm-hmm. Of all people, yeah, the biggest brain in the MCU. Mm-hmm. I like I say, I find something extremely suspect about it. Yeah, and I'm almost wondering too. I'm going to kind of throw something out left field about this one. What if we're looking at the wrong person underneath the helmet? That could be. We're thinking Xavier. We're thinking Cassandra Nova. Mm-hmm. But with Scott Summers' remark, yeah, of. You know, say hi to Franklin, and he has family waiting for him. Yeah. Pat, you familiar with the Ultimates universe? A little bit. Do you know who the maker was? I cannot remember. No. The evil Reed Richards. Ooh. They have brought over characters from the Ultimate universe. And what's to say that Reed Richards could be evil here? And, yeah. And that would be something yeah. I would not doubt no. going into this, that you kind of play that subtle jab of is he calling for his son to come back since he doesn't have any family on this side of the universe. Right, right. And obviously he's a big enough brain that he could take over. I mean, granted, that's a hell of a reach. Mm-hmm. But to yeah. have that much control over every single mutant on the planet to jump at your bidding, let alone he broke in. If you mm-hmm. want to think about that, the mission was to go into the facility for damage control and get the files on Stark and Richards. Yep. I mean, I'm not saying, but I'm saying. Let me Sounds throw. Out, fishy. Let me throw out one of those wild hashtag ODPH predictions. 
I'm going to say that that's uh, the ultimate Reed Richards. Could be. That he is back, and this is how he's he's doing it, and putting it out of the realm of clones and, and extending human life. And yeah. I mean, Could be. I, I mean, one of the predictions we had on last week's show that uh, yours truly had was I said, uh, you know, you might want to get to your comic shop early because this is, I feel this issue is going to be flying off the shelves. And sure enough, it did because it went in, it went on sale on Wednesday, the 24th of July, as we record. And by Friday, I think it was in its third reprinting. Yeah. So definitely get down to your comic shops this week. I mean, if you haven't picked up House of X, get a copy where you can get a copy. Mm-hmm. But this week, Powers of X. Yeah, is coming out. That's the other thing they do. They, they like I think the, the very last page or one of the final pages of the issue they give is they give you like a table of contents style list of like the reading order and when it comes out. So like you can your calendar on your phone or if you have a calendar on your wall at home, you can mark them on your calendar so you can remember. Yeah, because obviously these are each going to be six issues, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and, and if and if Hickman is to be believed, and well, at this point I wouldn't doubt the man, you're going to need to read all of these issues for what's coming next. Right, because the next wave, the Dawn of X, when everything gets rebooted, I mm-hmm. believe drops in October. Yeah. So January, I mean July, August, September, so unless they're coming out twice a month. Right. They'll lead right into it, so it's definitely worthwhile. It's definitely lived up. It's been the biggest. Yeah. It's been the most hyped comic event mm-hmm. of the year thus far, and, yeah. uh, and I'll say the summer by far. Oh yeah, easily. So definitely get down your local comic shops, pick up the issue, and if you have, hit us up on that hashtag hashtag ODPH. What was your thoughts on House of X number one? We want to know. We would definitely interact with you. You can find the social links on our homepage. Hash, or at ochoduroparleyhour.com. Man, I'm too amped up talking about this book because it's that good. So definitely hit us up. Let us know. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Jimmy Gazdick from Crimson Brethren and Floodlands, and you're listening to ODPH. Coming back for another segment on this edition of the ODPH. Mm-hmm. And you know we're talking Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., folks. We talked yeah, about we the, We talked about the boys. It's great. You should definitely binge watch it. It's amazing. But we are currently in the mix of Season 6 of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yep. We break down every episode. It has been a great season thus far. Yeah. Very interesting take on where they're going. A little bit. And as we are going to break down this past episode, we are talking spoilers. You know the drill, folks. So we're going to get into it in 3, 2, 1, pad. What did you think of the episode? Thought it was a great episode. Didn't know that Daisy had that kind of a mean streak in her. I I think it's always been there. I think they've definitely kind of held it with kid gloves. Yeah. So this is going to be interesting, especially as they're going into the season finale, Mm -hmm. two-hour episode this week coming up as we were recording. Yeah. But as we see as the episode opens up, Yo-Yo and Mac are on the plane with Izel. As we left the previous episode, Izel had captured Yo-Yo and taken the Gravitonium Spear. Yeah to find out the location of how she can open the gateway for the monoliths. And at this point, Yo-Yo awakens, and she's got her hands covered in blood, and Mac looks like he's beaten up, and they're having a conversation and reveals, well, you know, Benson, Dr. Benson should be brought into this because he knows a thing or two about this. And at this point, Izel emerges from Mac. Yep. So, Pat, let me ask you this, jumping out of the gate. Izel has definitely been using her powers. Well, but to her advantage how are you thinking that this is coming across uh not well because it's it's getting to the point of can you know the person that's in front of you can you really trust them and can you believe what they're saying because at any point somebody can walk into the room and wait crap is that who i think it is or is that izel possessing them 
Right, because at this stage too, even though it's the two of them on the plane, it's like you can't trust anybody. No. So it's it's almost like why are you sharing secrets to each other? Because yeah. you can't trust it. And obviously So the pickings are slim for who she's gonna possess and <laughs> odds are not in your favor. Exactly. So as they're dealing with this that they're now going to get Benson Back at the lighthouse, Quake is you know trying to scramble the troops, and Fitzsimmons and Deke are trying to figure out a way to stop Izell and figure out the whole mess of Sarge. Because as we revealed last episode, Sarge is half Coulson, half Monolith, half somebody else. Yeah. Sorry, I'm doing Scott Steiner math, but <laughs> it, it's one of those like he's definitely not. He's not quite sure what's going on. Yeah, and in fact, at this point, I'm not either because. Yeah. This has just been a wild take on how to explain what is going on with Coulson. Yeah. But I'm okay with it. It's oh, just, yeah. It's just been a little confusing. It's just one of those things that's like for every answer and seemingly, you know, as whatever portion of the curtain gets pulled back on the final answer, if there, a more curtain gets revealed. Of, oh, hey, yeah, you don't really know what's going on. No, you definitely don't, which, I mean, that's great. And it's, a, it's a trademark of S.H.I.E.L.D. Just when you think you yeah. have the answers, yeah. it goes up in smoke. And as we're seeing, May gets her chance to interrogate Sarge, you know, post-reveal of, you know, is, is he Coulson, is he mm-hmm. not, and leaves with no results. And then Quake and May are arguing about how to handle this because Quake, I think, is understanding the gravity of the situation. Yeah, which she hadn't had to deal with for a good portion of the season because, well, she wasn't there. Right. So at this stage, she is kind of going, okay, we got to figure out what he is, and if he's not going to help us, we got to figure out what to do with him. Because mm-hmm. We can't keep going on thinking that he's Colson and he's definitely not. And May yeah. is May is holding out all hope that he is Colson. Yeah. Somehow, some way, and you know, is there you know something that's saying he is? Yeah, and, and even Sarge realizes this, and at one point in the episodes, I, like looks at her and yells, "I'm not the solution to your broken heart." Yeah, and just answers right there in the interrogation. Well, so just twist that knife a little further. Absolutely. And then they go jumping to where Benson is brought to meet Izel, Mac, and Yo Yo. And Benson breaks down the whole monolith doorway and releasing mm-hmm. the trapped souls. And at this point, Benson kind of figures out something's wrong, which I was like, you've been with S.H.I.E.L.D. for, like, what, a hot second? Yeah. How are you figuring out spy secrets? I feel like he's that's just part of who he is, where, he, you know, he's been he's been around long enough. He's he's of, of an elder age or older age. You know, he's he's well-versed, and he I think he can, it just shows he can pick up on people like, wait a minute, it doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, so obviously at this thing, he senses trouble and he deletes a file, and Izel just goes Izel and has jumps inside Mac and has him kill the guard that came with him, mm-hmm. which this is now becoming the the running thing where Izel is going by any means necessary. Yep. I'm going to show you I'm serious, and you're going to do what I want and do it without question. Mm-hmm. But at this stage, she's met with some resistance from Benson, which I was very surprised at, Dr. Benson, rather. Yeah. So I was really kind of surprised at, at his portrayal this episode. But as we say, they go, they do a lot of jumping around too, mm-hmm. which, I, like I said, I, I think I've been critical about that this season. Like They do a lot of jumping yeah. around. And at this stage, they jump back to where Quake is talking with Sarge and Fitzsimmons are figuring out, okay, something about that sword and the knife is the key. Yeah. And they can't exactly figure it out, but Simmons is, you know, trying to actually address Quake and and as her friend saying, you know, you're running from the situation that's at hand. Mm -hmm. And it's showing because Quake is trying to be all business about this, which I think is the right play. Yeah. So why everybody's like, well, you're running away from your problem. It's like. Yeah, and you see this a lot, both in real life and in other TV shows and movies, where somebody has somebody close to them pass away, and and when they should really be taking the time to like reflect and remember them and kind of go through the stages of grief, they put their notes to the grindstone, and and 
and they even bring this up to her like, listen, this isn't the first close person in your life you've lost and you're following the same pattern. Yeah. So and then they tie it back to, I mean, obviously, when they first met Sky. So, yeah. And note how I will use that word because that'll come up later. Mm-hmm. But as they jump back to Yo-Yo and Mac, I mean, they're captured and they're talking, you know, they're seeing what's going on with Izel, who's activate who activates the sphere. And brings back Benson's dead lover, Thomas. Yeah. Which is wild to see that he now appears. And it almost was like, was his soul trapped somewhere? Because he starts reading off information. I don't see. I don't think it was trapped somewhere. It reminded me, and Harry Potter readers will understand what I'm talking about. It reminded me of the Resurrection Stone in Harry Potter. It was one of the three powerful objects in Harry Potter. I'm going Spark Notes version just for simplicity's sake. Where the person held it, like Harry held it in the end of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And his parents, his uh, godfather Sirius, and uh, his teacher and parents friend uh, Remus Lupin came to talk to him before he confronted Voldemort. And, and they were having full conversations with him. So I think it was something akin to that because in every instance that this device was used, everyone went, wait, how did I get here? So I think that was just that device pulling them from like the next dimension, the afterlife, whatever you want to call it, and dragging them here. And they're like, wait, how did I get here? Right, because after we start seeing they're, they're connecting and Benson, or like Dr. Benson, I got to remember to say that. Is just sitting there and trying to like. So he's getting played like a fiddle. Yeah, he's getting played, and you can see the emotions pouring out of him mm-hmm. that he finally gets broken. So Dr. Benson is now broken at this stage, and Izel is just basically saying, I will keep making you relive this until you tell me what I want. Yeah. And at this stage, too, we jump back to Quake, who's reading Colson's goodbye letter, and she comes up with the idea that, okay, I'm going to force whatever's in you out of you. Hits him with a quake blast and breaks his neck. Mm-hmm. Telling no one she's going to do this, by the way. Yeah, because they're all like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, were you going to stop me if I told you? Yes. Well, that's why I didn't tell you. <laughs> so Quake Quake has picked up some t- some tips from Colson over yeah. the years, and that's yeah. definitely a Colson move. And at this stage, too, Colson regenerates himself after a while and, yep. and starts seeing his memories again. And, you know, Sarge is now realizing, okay, something's going on. I've been this has been done to me a couple times. So now at this stage, I think he's been killed what three times at least. So he now activates his powers and throws Quake across the room. Yeah, and tries making the escape. And at the same time, Mac and company are trying to make the escape plan because they're still in air, flying to their unspecified location, and they do enough of a distraction they get Doctor Benson on the. Uh, containment unit escape pod yep. and get him off the ship, which Izel is like, well, it doesn't matter. I've already figured it out anyway. And he's like, no, but it bought our team the information they need. So, so at this point, uh, Yo-Yo and, and Mac are like, woo, yeah, team win. We did something good. And she's like, no, oh, that's all right. Bring your team. I need more bodies. Exactly. So Izel is at that stage where you can tell the, the antagonist is ready to win. Yeah. And she's like, whatever. You can't stop me at this stage. And at this stage, too, it's Quake is now grabbing the sword that is supposed to be the weapon to end Izel mm-hmm. and going after Sarge. Yeah. Which comes to a weird scenario because Sarge just basically says, kill me already. Yeah. Would you just do this? Yeah. And then he goes, do it, Sky. Yeah. And you hear a pin drop. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, Pad, what does that entail? Uh, it entails that some of Coulson's memories are still there. Because think, how would he know? How would he know that name? I think that was Coulson coming out. That could be too. That's what I was thinking. That he's been trapped inside wherever you want to define that in 
internal dimension. Like, I guess that's the easiest way to describe it. He's been trapped there. Yeah. And he was willing to sacrifice himself mm-hmm. to to end this because if he thought that Izel was going to use him as a weapon, he was going to take himself out of the equation. And immediately, Daisy recognizes that as that's Coulson. Mm-hmm. And they have the embrace. You have the feels. It's, yeah. it's the moment where it's like you now know Coulson is back. Asterisk. Question mark? Yeah, question mark. But it's enough that you go, okay, I can kind of sense how this is going to play out, that now he's going to be with them full tilt. Yep. And at the other side of the world, too, they arrive at what appears to be like a Mayan temple in the Yucatan mm-hmm. that Izel is now trapped in Mac and Yogo, Yo-Yo again, and she's activating the sphere that's opening the gateway. And then they go quickly back to the lighthouse where, of all people, Deke figures out its frequency is how she's jumping into bodies. Uh-huh. And he's, I, he comes up with the crazy theory, but it works, which I almost think there was like a sense of jealousy from Fitz. Yeah. In that episode. Like, it was so weird, just well, his, but... his reaction, because none of them said, like, great job or anything. And he's kind of looking around like, yeah, I did this. I, I, I did this. Yeah. And, like, him and, and Fitz and Simmons just don't really, like, react. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I thought that was a weird exchange. I don't know if that's going to play into something later. Yeah, maybe. But it was just like, that kind of came off weird to me. And I, I don't know. That's just how I was looking at it. So at this stage, too, May and Quake are settling their issues about Coulson. Izel is revealing her plan about rebuilding the monolith to activate the portals. And Mac and Yogo are going to be the part of the bait. And then at this stage, she's, they're like, well, we're not helping you. And then they go and get a character from last season, mm-hmm. the young child that was helping them yep. escape from the Kree uh, army that they were, you know, getting hunted by last season, season five. Yeah, and that's how it ends. And then you have the weird Chronocoms hunters making their plea, and they haven't been around for what three or four episodes? I want to say four. Yeah, like I honestly forgot that they were part of the show. I will be honest because I thought when Enoch was gone. So were they. Mm-hmm. But now apparently they're going to tie into So like a bad rash or coming back. Yeah. So I guess overall, Pat, final thoughts on the episode. Wild episode. Like I said, as, as many questions as we get answered, like three times Adam out, come up. Can't wait to see where they go with season six and, and the two-hour finale. You know, if S.H.I.E.L.D. is going two hours, they're going big. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those situations that they have to go big or go home. This whole season has been good. And I'm not trying to put it past that it's it's not, and it's it's just been very different. Yeah, that more different than I think I was looking to this entire season. But the story of Coulson and everything going on with him, and you know, is that really Phil Coulson? Right. I think has been definitely something of note that we really didn't know what we were expecting from him. Right. At all this season, and and where we take the story going forward is really like anybody's guess, but they're tying in enough elements from previous seasons to really draw in characters that we have seen before, like Flint. That was the child yeah. that I couldn't think of. Um, I mean, obviously he was a tie in a big part of season five that they bring in him back to where they started in the beginning where, I mean, even the simple reference of sky is tying into season one and just, you know, how the, you know, the father daughter element happened between Colson and sky Shield is going out definitely on a high note, but they have a lot of moving parts that they got to really tie in together to end the season with. Yeah, I have full faith they're going to do it. Don't don't get me wrong, but it's just tying in with everything going on with Enoch and now Izel versus Sarge and what's going to happen there and how the rest of the team falls out. 
let alone this is during the snap years. Mm-hmm. Shield has got a lot on its plate that's got to wrap up and tie into a bow, and then we obviously we go next year into season seven, which they said they're going to deal with Endgame in next season. Yeah, so depending on how this ends is going to factor into next season very, very big because if they don't survive this and then they have to explain the time jump to next season, it's going to get a little crazy to keep up with. A little bit. A little bit. So overall, though, it's been a great episode, great season so far. Can't wait to see how they end it to our episode. Get ready for it Friday nights on ABC or wherever you watch it on your streaming services. But hit us up on our social media and let us know what you think. What did, was your thoughts about S.H.I.E.L.D. this past season, this past episode? We want to know. Hit us up on the hashtag, hashtag ODPH. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is George Gatton, and you are listening to the Ocho Duro Parley Hour Entertainment Edition. Coming back for the final segment on this edition of the ODPH Podcast. Pad, what do you got for those one-shots? Got a couple things. Uh, interesting note uh, about The Lion King. Of course, I reviewed it on last week's episode. Great movie. Cannot recommend it enough. Uh, but it already has uh, broken a bit of a record in a surprising amount of time. Uh, since its debut on July 19th, we are sitting just uh, you know, about two weeks or so, uh, however many days it's been. Uh, excuse me. Here it is. Uh, 19 days since its release. It is going to cross uh, $1 billion at the Worldwide Box office, which is uh, kudos to Disney uh, and the crew on making that film. It's a great film and very well deserved. Uh, moving on, got some interesting news. Uh, there's been a long rumored, I don't know if it's still going on or if it's not, uh, but they're, they're the uh, Quentin Tarantino Star Trek film, you know, it's happening. It's not, I'm not quite sure what's going on, but there was some interesting news this week uh, where William Shatner did an interview and he said he would be willing to and would love to reprise his role as Captain Kirk in Quentin Tarantino's Star Trek film. You know, quote, I, you know, I would like to do it. Uh, but the thing of it is, is okay. That's all fine and dandy. I don't think anything is known about this film, whether it's still happening, whether it's not where it's, if it's going to be set in the Chris Pine universe, whether it's not outside of Quentin Tarantino wants to do a Star Trek movie and might be doing a Star Trek movie. Not real much is known about it. So that's something to keep your eye out on. And then the other thing is, you know, we've talked about it before, but we got some interesting behind the scenes look at the Amazon Lord of the Rings series. And when I say behind the scenes, I'm not talking sets and and costumes and whatnot, but just some of the producers, writers and artists on the show. And my God, have they got a star studded cast behind this. Showrunners are J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, uh, who they don't have any TV writing credits uh, to their name, but hey. Neither did the Game of Thrones guys before they started. Exactly. Uh, and uh, moving on from that, the writer's room for the untitled show features Jennifer Hutchinson, who worked on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, uh, Helen Shang, who worked on Hannibal, Justin Dole, who worked on Stranger Things, Brian Cogman, who worked on Game of Thrones, and Stephanie Folsom, who worked on uh, Toy Story 4. Uh, and then you've got uh, J.A. Bayona, who directed Jurassic World, The Fallen Kingdom, is directing the first two episodes of The Lord of the Rings show. Uh, Kate Hawley is the costume designer. Uh, she previously worked on Edge of Tomorrow and Suicide Squad. Rick Heinrich, uh, who won an Oscar for the TV show Sleepy Hollow uh, and also worked on Star Wars The Last Jedi, is the production designer. Uh, Jason Smith, who worked on The Revenant, Super 8, and The Avengers, is the visual effects supervisor. 
so definitely some star-studded casts of of just shows that have been worked on being brought to this show and i think that just goes to show the level of of quality they want to bring to a franchise as storied and as revered as lord of the rings well you know obviously with that pedigree you gotta deliver Mm -hmm. that it does have a a rabid fan base it's not as I would say it's not as wild per se as like Game of Thrones. Right. Maybe it's it's up there. I'm yeah. not, not going to say it isn't, but for that series, you definitely have to deliver. Anything less than amazing is going to be a failure. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're they're putting a lot into that, I think, is huge. And yeah, and I think the other big thing they've got is they've got the uh, concept artist John Howe, who worked on the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy, uh, is working with it. And then some, you know, I won't go through all the names, but you know, some of the work that for the numerous producers they have on the show, uh, they've worked on shows such as Westworld, Boardwalk Empire, Ten Cloverfield Lane, and The Departed, just to name a few. And that's, I mean, the pedigree right there is yeah. speaks for itself. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes out, it's definitely going to be something to watch. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, definitely you got to keep your eyes open for that because, I mean, like I said, Amazon's doing some big things lately. Yeah. The boys leading the pack right now, though. Mm-hmm. Can't recommend that enough. So, and let me touch base, too, on the tw- Tarantino's Star Trek. Yeah. I heard he is trying to keep it in the Chris Pine universe. Okay. That's the last I heard. But, okay. I mean, that could be subject to change. Right. But even, I mean, he just had, what, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood come out yeah. now? Yeah, yeah. So, obviously, I mean, Tarantino brings a lot to the table into that universe, and I'm intrigued if this does happen. I would love to see it, because I haven't seen every Tarantino film. I really didn't start watching his films until Inglorious Bastards come out, but I've become a fan. I would love to see his take on it. Oh, Reservoir Dogs all day. All day. I mean, Pulp Fiction, too. I mean, Tarantino has done some amazing film work, so... You know, his take in, like, a superhero-type world, and, I mean, Star Trek sci-fi fantasy... I, I'm intrigued, let's just say the least, and I, I will definitely be there open and eye for that. I'm saying it's funny you bring up uh, superheroes and whatnot. Uh, there was an interesting interview at the end of the Endgame press tour uh, that was going on where the writers for uh, Avengers Endgame, they were asked, what's the next kind of you know franchise or superhero franchise you'd like to tackle? And they brought up uh, doing a, writing a Superman film, which I'd be all sorts of for. At this stage, with Henry Cavill off, I mean, it's kind of a clean slate. So if they want to go there, yeah, it, it would it would do well. I mean, I don't, I'd be okay with that. Yeah, because they said there there are obvious similarities between the two, and that they feel they could do, you know, a, 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 they feel they could do a very good Superman film. And I'm like, hey, you know what? Given their track record and their history, why not? Yeah, and obviously, if they can get that ship back on track, mm-hmm. I'm completely okay with that. Yeah. And I'm also super excited that Ava DuVernay said Darkseid is going to be in the New Gods movie. Uh huh. Go to her Twitter account. She said it. Oh, so good. So good. Had to throw that in there quick. So speaking of movies from my one shots. Okay. Okay. Avengers Endgame, speaking of that, out on digital today. Yep. Uh, Blu-ray is in a couple weeks. Breaking records on Fandango now. Holy cow. No surprise. Yeah, no shocker there. The greatest movie of all time, according to the box office records, only... I mean, it speaks for itself. So yeah. y- you knew it was going to be there. I'm yep. per- I'm going to try waiting until Disney Plus comes out and, and save myself the time. Oh, but I'm not waiting. Yeah, I know. I don't think it's going to happen. But there's another movie that's coming to the box office this week. Okay. The Legend. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Oh, yeah. Jason Statham. Yep. In the Fast and Furious Hobbs and Shaw spinoff. Yep. Um, I mean, what can you really say about this franchise that hasn't already been said? I mean... There was an article this week where one of the writers ruled out, hadn't ruled out them going to space. Yeah. Which, I mean, it only seems logical. Yeah. I I, I say this is, I'm we're going opening night, uh, the panel and some yeah. friends. Yeah. Uh, let me just say this. I am dumbing down any kind of expectation of like a great script of anything. I just want to go be entertained. Mm-hmm. There's going to be high action stunts. Yeah. 
a probably a really wild script that I'm going to go really a lot during through. Yeah. But it's just good summertime fun. Uh-huh. And to see where this franchise has started, that this is now, what, film nine in that series? Yeah, I think this one makes nine. Oh my god! And like, and they're still coming out with more Fast and Furious. It, yeah, they're they're filming the next Fast and Furious proper titled film as we speak. If you told me way back when that this franchise would get to five films, let alone nine, I would have said you are full of it. I think Vin Diesel would have said the same thing, just a little more colorful. Yeah, and just to see where it is now. I mean, the trailer Idris Elba is a super villain. Yeah, literally. Yeah, I mean. I, I just can't wait to go laugh. Like, I'm going to laugh. It's going to be a fun, just good summer film. Lower any expectations of a, of a super high grade on it, but it's, yeah. it's just going to be a fun time. Yeah. So I can't wait to see that. And let me close out the show with mentioning coming to the comic book shops this week. We already talked about Powers of X on the Marvel side. Mm-hmm. Two big books by DC, Batman Who Laughs, number seven, Ooh. and Batman Last Night on Earth, number two, Snyder and Capullo doing it again, doing the final Batman story. <sighs> It's going to be a lot to get down to your local comic shop and check out. Definitely don't miss out on that. The music you heard on the show was Crimson Brethren, but they're in a new band called Floodlands. You can find out all about them and all the music that you hear on the show, along with the blogs and contact info and everything that is ODPH on OchoDuroParleyHour.com. Hit up the webpage, interact with us, use the hashtag ODPH, because that's all we got for this week. So for Padawan J, thank you, thank you. I'm your host, Kenem. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 